do have a group visiting with us from the faraway country of Illinois. Right? Yeah, so I can make sure you welcome them. I think they can speak English for the most part, so you can greet them, and it's, I know it's a faraway place. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount for quite some time now, and we're going to continue along that line. Uh, we've just concluded a portion of the sermon that talks about uh, kingdom devotion and what's involved with that. And the last part of that devotion had to do with fasting, something that is foreign to many Americans, that whole concept of doing without food or technology or something that might be neutral for a time uh, to accomplish a spiritual purpose. And in that, we looked at several different reasons why somebody might do that, and we looked at it in quite detail, but focusing on the Word of God, a time to really soak in God's Word and admit our dependence on Him, just like we're dependent on food, we put that aside and our dependence is always before our eyes when, when we're not eating. Uh, dire need for God's mercy and direction, and we looked at places in the Scripture where that was the case and they needed that, so they fasted to clearly hear God's voice and be in a mindset to help align their heart with his heart. We looked at dependence on the bread of life needs bolstering, living too self-sufficiently, and we need to focus on that. We looked at the thought of purging uh, good things that have consumed us, things that could be very neutral, but we found we've put too much emphasis on them, and they are uh, really running us. They've become some kind of God that we worship. And fifthly, we looked at our dependence on God for ministry some big moving, something seems so insurmountable that unless God does a major moving, it's not going to move. Uh, it could be for our country and, and the place that we're in. It could be for somebody that you don't know that you want to see them come to know the Lord and you, you just don't know if it ever could happen. Uh, but you do things like that for fasting. And in context where we've been and to pave the way for where we're going to go, uh, this is the general overall theme and uh, outline of the sermon. Uh, the section we're in in chapter 6 is the Father is before their eyes, freeing them from hypocrisy. And we looked at this section of the believers as they live before God. What needs to be true of a member of the kingdom? And in these three areas, once they get woven into our hearts, then we're ready to kind of move out into the world as a kingdom ambassador. If you neglect any of those things, then it becomes very difficult to carry on the kingdom orders of our king because this is the devotion, the private life that you have before the Lord, not the way people look at you, not what they think of you, but what God knows to be true of you. Now, once we get those things down, we're ready to move on, and this is where we're heading now, verses 19 through 14. The believer, as they live in the world, and we go from kingdom devotion to kingdom demeanor. What am I supposed to look like? How do I live out this life that God has put in me? Verses 19 through 24, we're going to look at today, our investment, and it's a warning about loving the world. Now, we're going to see next week, it branches out from there, is worry and anxiety about living in the world. So there's two different aspects of it that, that as we live before God that we need to keep in mind. One is not to love this world, to make a choice about where we're going to invest our lives. But the other pitfall would be worry and anxiety about living in the world, the things that are going to come my way. And I know that's probably not an issue for any of us. We're not prone to worry or have anxiety. Um, but all of this really flows together. 
That when I get my devotion before the Lord and my prayers before the Lord and I, and I get my giving before the Lord, I, I, my heart's in a right place then to begin to make proper choices. If I don't get my heart right before the Lord, my choices won't be reflective of what they need to be to be a kingdom warrior. So we're going to look at that choice today, the choice that every one of us makes every day when we wake up. What treasure will I look for? What treasure will I seek? So as we do that, let's, I'm going to read, out, read the scripture to you. This is the passage we want to look at today. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp is, is uh, excuse me, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, and some of your Bibles will say mammon there, and we'll talk about that in a minute. As we begin to unfold the, the way we are to live before the Lord, and the two choices that uh, face us all as we live in this world, that begins by do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. The exact uh, flavor of the original language is an assumption that this is what you're going to be doing. That given being born into this world, that the admonition that's given to us is do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth. In other words, stop doing this because you already are. That our hearts will treasure what is here. Our hearts will seek after whatever we see. Our treasures will be earthly. So the admonition for the kingdom warrior is to stop doing that. Now, treasures in themselves are not evil. And the admonition that we have here in view of is, is the selfish accumulation of stuff. That I'm doing this to build my kingdom. I'm doing this for myself to make myself uh, better. To, to grow what I have so that I can be proudful, so that I can be protected, so I can look to the future and, and know that I've got all the precious little jewels and things that I need and that I want. Uh, Job was a rich man. Rich, being rich is not an evil. In fact, his kingdom was the kingdom of God, and his riches, although he had them, they did not have him. And that's the big difference. We read in our scripture the passage about the bigger barns, and, and I like what it says there, and I can't almost, I have to giggle when I read it. When it says, I will say to my soul, soul? Any of you talk like that to yourself? You know, I, I say to my soul, soul, uh, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And that's the kind of treasure that's being sought. A self-seeking, self-satisfying, and, and I want this, and once I get this, I'm a little tired of that, so I need something else. Uh, it's kind of like the, the latest iPhone. You know, some of you have that disease. You know, once you got it, and all of a sudden, 13, what number are we on? 12? 13? You know, whatever it is, I need a better one. Some of you hate them. You just want to throw them in the lake like Bob Barr did one last night. You know, it's, but whatever it could be, it's riches that you get, but you want more. And your eye looks to something else, and you're gaining riches 
for the sole purpose of gratifying yourself. You're not using them for the kingdom of God. And that's, that's what's being spoken about here is do not lay up for yourself treasures or stop laying them up. Uh, this world is not our home. So the question that's being asked uh, behind the scenes is, here is how do I view myself and my life in this world? Do I really think that everything here is all that counts? Or am I a pilgrim or maybe a tourist, so to speak? I love the out of doors, and I, and I remember back to my youth group years, we'd go backpacking. And, and our, our leader would always say, you know, when you go out into the woods, it's almost like you're visiting somebody else's home. And you should leave it better than when you left it and when you came into it. And the thought is that, that you, yes, you're responsible there, but you're only there for a short time. And that's the picture that we all should have, that we are pilgrims. We're visiting the woods, and, and although it's not our home, we take care of it. We love it. We, 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 we behave responsibly within it, but it is not where we live. It is not where we come from. We are not at home here. And the fleeting nature of the treasures of this world, uh, we're going to see, are really determined by where we choose to store them. Now, some of us are occasionally absent-minded. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who put frozen food in a refrigerator before. Okay? I, I know some of you have done that. You know, you're thinking one thing. Sometimes I, I have found a box of cereal in our refrigerator before. You know, these things happen. You're just not thinking. And, you, and, and the difference is that certain things need to be stored in certain places that are appropriate for them. You choose the wrong one, and it will be spoiled, and you will lose them. Heaven, for us, is the safe storage. And in all of this that we choose, there are certain choices that we make that are more important than others. I know sometimes I've been at a restaurant, and somebody at the table inevitably will languish over choosing something off the menu. Well, I don't know what I want. There's so many good things. Ten minutes later, I still don't know what I want. And they look into the person next to them. What are you getting? And then they start asking each other, because this is a big choice. And, and, you know, heaven and earth could hang on, and if you make the wrong choice on this menu, who knows what could happen in your life? You see, some choices we languish over, but it's not that big of a deal. Whatever happens, and the worst that could happen is we get a meal that we just didn't really like that much. But there's not that much at stake. Other times, there is a lot at stake. Suppose you needed a life-saving surgery, and you get the phone book out, and you see a thousand different people who could do this operation for you. And you just, well, you know what? Just pick one. I'm sure they're all the same. You know, you're going to put some effort into it. You're going to want to know that the choice that I make here makes all the difference in the world. And I'm not just going to do it on a, a women of prayer and just say, oh, whatever, let's see, yeah, this one. This is who I want. You will put effort into it. And the choice of your treasure house, the place for the storage of your life, is the most important decision you can make, assuming that you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. That is the most important one. But then how to live that out should become paramount in our minds. Uh, heaven is the safe storage. And the choice that we need to make in regard to that makes all the difference in our lives. 
it, it, it's heaven that is the place where we can put our treasure, put our hearts, and know that it's safe from all the dangers that could come against us. And you say, what are those dangers? Well, we'll find out. Since heaven is the state storage, none of these dangers can diminish it. And the passage will go on to show us uh, the dangers we're into if we decide to live for this world. If our treasure is not in heaven, it's almost like we get on a downward spiral, that we take a step into the wrong place, and all of a sudden, each and every day that we live with the wrong treasure, we go further and further away from the heart of God. Danger number one is at the end of the day, you will lose your stuff. Isn't that horrible to think about losing your stuff? We love stuff. We have stuff everywhere. Does anyone have too much stuff? Yeah. Does anybody like someone else's stuff? You ever fall into that cat? Yeah. Okay. We find that stuff envy goes on all the time. You know, we're going to have a yard sale in September here at the church so people can get rid of their stuff. You know, and I saw a couple of people, oh, I'm so excited. I got too much stuff. I got to get rid of some. And, and sometimes we have so much, we're happy to give it away. And somebody will say, oh, I'm really appreciative for what you gave me. Like, no, you're doing me a favor. I'm getting rid of this stuff. So the stuff that we have, that we treasure, the first danger when we choose the wrong storage place is that we find out that we're going to lose it all. That at the end of the day, none of it really matters. And the scripture gives us a couple um, pictures to see how it gets destroyed. Moth and rust, or that which eats. Uh, some of your Bibles will say rust. Some of them will say vermin. And you wonder, well, what's the difference? Why does one Bible say it one way and one a different way? Well, it's really because in the original, it doesn't specify. It's that which eats it up, that which will cause it to disappear. So it could be eaten up like a rat or a mouse might eat something. It could be like rust that causes um, uh, you know, corrosion. So the translator picks the flavor of what they think is going on there. So that's why your Bibles say it the way they do. And they destroy. That word destroy, if you look back at verse 16 of Matthew 6, when the um, people there, would, the, the Pharisees would disguise their faces in fasting, they would make their original face cause to disappear is the idea behind it. It's the exact same word for destroy here, that these things that we love, the things that we accumulate, will be caused to be, they'll be caused to disappear. They will vanish behind something else. Uh, we've had this happen at our house quite often. Just a week or two ago, I, I got a tragic text from Alice. Mice had gotten into her wool, her yarn, and you know how she loves the yarn. And it's like, oh, no, we got to do something. They're eating it up. They're causing it to disappear. My daughter, Samantha, she has this habit of going into the refrigerator and actually reading expiration dates. Can you imagine that? Why, why would one do that? You know, she takes them seriously, that this has a shelf life. It only lasts for a certain amount of time. To me, they're just guidelines. You know, it's like best case scenario, you know. But after that, if it... Taste it, smell it. If it's good, go for it. But things get destroyed. They get eaten up. And they have a shelf life. They have an expiration date. They, the second portion of it, the thieves break in and steal. Literally, it means they dig in. They break in, they dig in. And, and the picture is back in the houses of the day, 
it wasn't like they came in through a door or window like they might today. It was clay, and it was made in such a way that they would take a shovel and actually dig a hole through the house. They would dig in, and in Greek, the word for burglar is a wall digger, somebody who will come in and take your treasure from you, even though it does not belong to them. So no matter how you look at it, clothes get eaten, stuff deteriorates, we lose all else to the thieves of this life. Your stuff will not last forever. You don't take it with you, and we all know that. But it's so tempted to get into that treadmill of pursuing of things and of stuff and getting the bigger this and the bigger that and trusting in those riches and trusting in our retirement and trusting in them and drawing joy from those things. And if they were ever lost, we would be devastated. I remember as a child at the Jersey Shore building sandcastles and making, putting all this effort into it only to have the tide start to come in. And then I'd frantically start to build my little moat and, and the way to protect it or big, a big mound. And I will tell you, I was never once successful. The tide, you cannot fight it. And that is the way of this world. The things that we would live for, we will lose them if they are the goal in and of themselves. The second danger, you'll lose your heart. You think it's bad enough to lose everything, to have built your whole life for one purpose and then find at the end it goes up in smoke. But losing your heart is equally as devastating. To lose your heart, the scripture says here, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The affections of our hearts the affection of the heart determines treasure. Have you ever noticed how some people treasure something and to you it seems a little worthless? Like, why is it so important? I know I'm kind of the sentimental person. I will kind of want to hang on to little knickknacks or things that bring memories to me of something. And I know there was this one just recently, a little tiny glass hand-blown pitcher. And Alice knew that I liked it because it was attached to a memory. So she'd been saving and she'd been holding on to it. And, and she showed to me one day, what do you want to do with this? Now, I, I've just noticed I don't remember things like I used to. And I looked at it and I had no memory. Why I had even kept it? So all of a sudden, that treasure had no more sentimental value. So I was like, get rid of it. And she looked at me, I thought this was special. And I said, well, it was, but I don't remember why. So if I don't remember why, it's no longer a treasure. Sell it. Give it away at the yard sale. Uh, we have a friend uh, back in New Jersey, and if this is true of you, uh, this is not slighting anybody. But I remember that, that people were going through the scrapbook of childhood memories of their baby. And in the one page, there's something that looked like a dried-up centipede. And, and like, oh, we should probably throw this out. And the mom said, oh, no, oh, no, that's the umbilical cord. We dried it and put it between the pages. And I'm like... That's not treasure. They don't say anything. You know, if you've, if you've done that, bless your heart, it's treasure. It's okay. But I remember thinking, wow, the affections of your heart really do decide. And I'll stick to the lock of hair or the little pair of shoes, you know, but this was a real dried umbilical cord in there. I'm like, okay, if it's your treasure, that's fine. Your heart, the choice you make about what to live for, 
will determine what's important and what is invaluable to you. And the thing about this that's hard to determine is that I love this world, therefore I start putting treasure. That's true. But the other side of it is also true, that my affections follow my treasure and choice. Once I've set up this world, and I'm starting to live for it, and I want this stuff, and, and, and God's heaven, yeah, I acknowledge it on Sundays, but in my heart of hearts, I get really excited by the stuff this world has. My career, everything that's in front of me. And as I do that, not only will I find I, I love this, so I treasure it, my affections start to live there. My heart gets anchored to this world. So when this world doesn't go well, when things don't happen that, that make my kingdom happy, I go into a tailspin. I have all kinds of worry and anxiety, and that's where we're going to head next week. I have all kinds of disillusionment, and my joy is wrapped up in this world, so when this world hits the skid, I do too. I fall apart, because this world really is my treasure, the place that I love. Proverbs 4.23 says to us, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Our hearts will determine how we view this life. They will determine what sends us into a tailspin. If we find ourselves constantly uh, distressed, constantly depressed, a lot of the times it's because our treasure is in the wrong place. And something's breaking in and stealing it. Something is deteriorating it. And we can't control it. And once we lose control, we, we really have an issue because this kingdom is the kingdom that I love and live in here right now. When I set my affections on something, my heart makes a treasure of it, and everything else then continues to downward spiral, and, and my life becomes something out of control. Because danger number three is after you lose your heart, you lose your mind. I hear a lot of people say, I think that's happening to me. I feel like I'm losing my mind. And I'm not talking about your memory. I'm not talking about your ability to keep your train of thought or know somebody's name that you, you know you know them, but you can't think of it. I'm not talking about losing your mind in that fashion at all. I'm talking more about where the scripture says here, the lamp of the body is the eye. This is the mind. Lamp equals eye. So as we go down this spiral, and we've made the wrong choice about where our treasure is going, we, we go one step lower, and our thinking even becomes impaired, so much so that we can't really make proper judgments any longer. The lamp of the body is the eye. That word, the eye there, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the lamp is emphatic in the Greek. It means this, this lamp, this eye of yours, gives you vision. It gives you either light or darkness. And if you don't let this stay pure, if you don't let this stay the way that it should, every part of your life will begin to fall apart. Earthly treasures seek to woo the heart and captivate our minds, our eye, and win our loyalty. And it's really hard, and this is where self-deception really starts to creep in. Because at this stage, once you've chosen the wrong treasure, and you start to have your mind tainted, you think you're okay. You think your choices are correct. But they're really not because of what has happened and the self-deception that takes place. Our treasures 
determines so much about us. The condition of our eye determines our ability to focus properly, setting our course. So when we live for the stuff, when our heart loves it, we find that our mind starts to get warped, in a sense, or bent. So if your eye is healthy, that means single or focused or pure, not divided. Your whole body will be full of light. And that's a beautiful place to be, to see everything the way God wants it. If your eye is singly focused on the treasures of heaven, you will have a life that is full of light. You'll have perceptions. You'll have the ability to evaluate. You'll be able to take a situation and spiritually take it apart to see what's happening behind the scenes. You won't be duped. You won't be deceived. It gives you that ability to to have a heart that really can stand firm because you know that God is working. And you don't let the lies that are around us affect your your mind and, and, and take you in places where you shouldn't be. But on the other side... If your eye is bad, wicked, idolatrous, malignant, it means, divided, your whole body will be filled with darkness. There are many believers who wonder why their life is dark. Why is it I don't have joy? And I look at some of these other Christians, and their life seems to be in perspective. It seems to be going well, and and they have lost track of the fact that their treasure, choice, has been the wrong one. They're living for the moment, living for the world, living for a person, living for a goal, instead of living for God Almighty. And when that happens, your mind even becomes bad. It's divided. It's on several, several different things. Now, some of you like have a to-do list at home, and you get to one item, and that's the item on the list, and that is what you do. And you won't do anything else till, the next, till that's done. Then you cross it off. Then you go to the next item. And some of you look at those people and say, they're sick. How do they stay so focused? Because some of you make the list, but you never even get to it. Because your mind is all over the place. And you're, oh, i got to do this. And then you see something else. And you're off doing this. And then you're off doing something else. And it's like, my mind is divided. And sometimes it's, it's kind of like the paralysis of analysis. Like, i got so much to do today, I'm going to do nothing. I'm just going to have more coffee. I, and, and you just sit back and nothing happens because your mind gets so divided and it's like, I don't even know where to start, so why start at all? Yeah, that's the mind here. This, this mind is divided on so many things. This is what I'm worried about and this is going on and this is what I don't have that I really want. And your mind becomes dark. So that no matter what happens in your life, you're really not joyful. Because your mind is looking at all these different things and grabbing after that and worrying about this, that you're not living singly focused on the one God who loves you, the God that has all things under his care, the one who knows the beginning from the end, the one who loves you endlessly, the one who will uphold you by the strong right hand. And that God is the focus. So the eye that focuses on that heavenly treasure is the single eye, the healthy eye. The bad eye is the one that's looking at everything, worrying about this, pursuing those other things. And it says that for that person, your whole body will be filled with darkness. That's not the life that God planned for us. He said when you are focused on treasure and you put it in the heavenly place, you will be full of light. 
even if there's darkness around you, you will be filled with light. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And it's interesting, it says that the light in you, when you make the wrong choice about where you're going to put your heavenly treasure or your earthly treasure, which one you're going to pursue, there will come a place where your mind will become so tainted that even when you think you're doing the right thing, you're not, because you are filled with darkness. Your whole body is filled of it. Self-deception, kind of in a cancerous way, will taint and eventually darken your thought process. So you won't have the heart and mind of God when you need to make a choice. You're going to have that divided heart controlling you. You're not going to, even if your conscience was one time clear and, and clean before the Lord, your conscience won't even work right anymore. Because every part of your mind has become dark. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And the interesting thing here is we're not talking about blindness. We're not talking about blindness at all. We're talking about an eye that's still seeing, but it's seeing inappropriately. It's seeing with a malignancy inside of it. And that's a lot worse than being blind. If I were blind this morning, I would know it. And I would say, can somebody help me get out of the pulpit and safely get down because I know I can't see. If you're self-deceived, you think you can. You think you've got the right choices. You think you know what you're seeing, so you won't ask for help. Your, your eye is dark, but you don't know it. It's been said by one man in these words, that seeing falsely is worse than blindness. A man who is too dim-sighted to discern the road from the ditch may feel which is which, but if the ditch appears manifestly to him to be the road, and the road the ditch, what shall become of him? False seeing is unseeing on the negative side of blindness. And, you know, we always tend to go in the direction where our eye is fixed. And if we're going in a self-deceived way, thinking we've got it right, and we don't, our whole life will be full of darkness. And I've seen this happen to many, many people. They've chosen the wrong treasure. And what will happen in their life is they slowly fade away from church and from the Lord. And the Bible all of a sudden becomes something that they doubt. They discount the scriptures. It's dated. It's, how old is that book? How can it be relevant for today? It's flawed. It's vague. You know, there's so many different interpretations. So we won't land on any of them. We'll just let people live and do whatever they want. Uh, they dismiss it. It's more therapeutic. It's just a book of themes. You know, it talks about love, so let's just talk about love. We won't talk about specifics. We won't talk about anything uh, concrete because it's so hard to know and it's such an old book. Let's just admire it rather than live by it. So the Bible becomes a little bit irrelevant, something that's not read or something that's actually somewhat rejected. And the mind thinks, well, this is a modern way of looking at the scriptures. This is what they're there for, but it's darkness. Then after that, the Bible becomes a little less important. All of a sudden, the fellowship of believers becomes a little less important. 
I, I kind of pull away from Christians. I, I pull away, and, and I'm really not involved with them anymore. And my mind thinks, I'm still okay, I'm good, I'm good. And we don't realize the purifying effect, the encouraging effect that other believers can have on us. The importance of the New Testament church, of being in a body like this, where we've got old saints, young saints, and everybody in between. And they're not all the same, they're all different, but they love the Lord and they can get along. But that becomes discounted. That's not important. And then... All of a sudden, the lines of morality begin to get blurred. And what they once thought was wrong or heard was wrong at church, well, maybe it's not so wrong anymore because the light now becomes darkness. And, and all of a sudden, people come to that Bible that they've kind of set aside, and they get new and novel ways of looking at it. And they will passively approve under the umbrella of being nonjudgmental uh, sins that the Bible has always said were sins. But now that we're modern, 2,000 years later, we understand that they were wrong all this time. And this really isn't so bad. This really isn't a sin. And I'm not going to tell them it's a sin, but the scriptures all along say that it is. And if we're here to call people to repent, and the Bible says this is a sin, but the darkness of my eye that used to be light doesn't see it that way anymore. The fact of what I'm doing in this world all of a sudden becomes unimportant. I'm not here to call people to repent. I'm just, hey, whatever you want to do, that's okay. I'm not going to tell you it's wrong. Well, the Bible is so clear on so many things. But as we step away from the treasure of heaven and we choose the treasure of earth, we see the Bible fades, church fades, morality fades, and all of the light that was once in our hearts then becomes darkness. The contrasts are exclusive. Either treasure on earth or treasure in heaven. The self-deception and darkness come in when we choose this world rather than the God of heaven. Jesus turns now in his last danger to a deception where somebody says, you know what? I'm going to choose both. Can I pursue this world and pursue God at the same time, is that possible? Can I do that? The scriptures say no one can serve two masters. And in this, it's interesting, there's no option to be your own master. And you hear a lot of people say that. Nobody tells me what to do. I am the master of my ship. I am the master of my destiny. No, you're not. You're a slave. You will be a slave to either passions or Jesus. You do not have freedom to follow anything other than your passions if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are a slave. You are in bondage. Jesus gives you the ability to break the bondage to your heart and become a slave of his voluntarily, a bond slave. And that choice is the choice we make every day when we get up. I'm going to be a slave to somebody. In fact, there's a great theologian of, of yesteryear, Bob Dylan. He said, you've got to serve somebody. Boy, you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And I was going to try to sing it like he did, but I, I figured that would be a disaster. You see, it, it's, it's not an option. You will have, two ma you have a master. You will love one or you will hate the other. And as we look at those words in particular, you will either love one, hate the other. Hate and love as the idea of a motive. What's going on inside your heart? You're going to have a favorite. There's going to be one that you gravitate towards. And we know what it's like to be a favorite. Any youngest, first, you know, youngest children here? Yeah, we're a favorite, aren't we? 
Isn't that great? Who loved being the favorite? You know, and if you ask your older siblings, they'll say, yeah, you're the favorite, you stinking rotten person. Yeah, favorite. I mean, it's such a big deal to be a favorite that one of my daughters went into my cell phone, changed her name to favorite daughter. I mean, what was that saying? And Alice, not to be undone, you know, outdone by that, went in and changed her name to favorite wife. I don't know how that works. <laughs> but, but we want to be favorites. We just want that. Because favoritism is a good thing. And this, you in your heart and mind will have a favorite. You'll have somebody that you will gravitate towards too. You can't have two masters. And the second phrase... Devoted and despised deal with the actions that come about because of it. The, the verse that's there uh, carries with it the idea that we will line up in the face of somebody and then run to them. So that one of these masters, we will love them enough to look eye to eye with them and our whole life will run to them. And that's the idea that, that's here in the scripture where it says we'll be devoted. We will line up face to face and run to them. Now, many of you know that I'm like a, a big movie person. Uh, some good movies, some really dumb movies. Well, there was a movie many years ago called Hook. And in that movie, there was two choices to be made. There was either Peter Pan, who didn't look like Peter Pan anymore, and you had Rufio, that were in there, and they had to choose between the two of them. And I have a quick video clip that kind of pictures what it means to be devoted in a face-to-face, eye-contact kind of way. You can recognize if you've seen the movie, you know this part. Who is this guy? Will I love him or not? That's the picture. An eye-to-eye love where you say, Jesus, there you are. And your heart and everything about you runs to him. And he becomes the master that you follow, the one that you love beyond all else. It goes on to say, you cannot serve God and mammon. I would recommend that this is not a good endeavor. My son Danny tried this one time. I remember when he was probably eight or nine. And I remember looking, thinking, oh, no, what will happen? He fell, one leg on one side, one leg on the other. I won't say any more. It wasn't good. It was one of those parental moments where you're like, oh, my goodness. Did I just watch that happen? You can't walk a fence. You can't be on both sides. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
Mammon there is the right word to use. Money doesn't say it enough. In the Hebrew language, originally manna, mammon signified wealth entrusted to someone for safekeeping. It was neutral. Later on, it took on an active sense, that in which a person trusts, and it became all negative. Eventually, it became capitalized mammon, as if designating trusting in anything but God is an idol, that it's something that I cling to. There was a farmer one time who kind of illustrates this loving God and loving mammon at the same time. And he had two calves that were born. One red one, one, I don't know whatever color calves are. I'll say white. Can a calf be white? That red and white? Whatever colors they were. And, and he was so pleased to have these two calves that, that he went into his wife and he says, you know what, I'm going to give one of these to the Lord. And I, I'll keep the other one for myself. And he's like, okay, this is, God gave these to me. Uh, one for me, one for him. And the wife says, well, let's just pick which one. He says, oh, no, we'll just raise them both, and then it'll become obvious, and we'll just, just let it ride. And, and when it comes time and they're full grown, one is the Lord's, one is mine. As it would happen, they grew, and one of them died. And the farmer was very, very distressed. And he came back in and said to his wife, the Lord's calf died. <laughs> you know, that's the way we are. We, we say our heart is one place, but it's not. And when things, you know, well, the Lord's calf died, the Lord's priority isn't important. I got what I need. I have what I want. There is only one safe harbor for your heart. It's the treasure storehouse of God Almighty. One goal for your eye to live for, for your heart to yearn for, for you to put all your, your chips in on, and it is God Almighty. The end verse of the chapter, or the, close to the end, says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. If you're the kind of person who puts notes in your Bible, you should probably take an arrow all the way from verse 33 all the way back up to verses 19 and 20. Because what happens in this verse is it defines for us what putting treasure in heaven really is. And we're going to find the whole passage, actually, as we develop it more next week, brings us to this. That seek you first, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will become light. Everything else will be added unto you. And I would say anything that's important, that's worthwhile, that's noble and righteous will become part of you when you're single-mindedly focused. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. You'll lose them. And the dangers and the downward spiral gives you a dark life that will not be anything like God has for you. When you make the right choice, your life is full of light, even if all around you is darkness. As children of the kingdom, we have a choice to make every morning. Where is my goal? Where will my heart go? What storehouse am I choosing? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us such clear words about how this life is to be lived. Unfortunately, Lord, we so often choose poorly. We live for the moment. We live for this world. We live for things that will never satisfy. And Father, we don't even realize how self-deceived we can become. 
Father, I ask right now that you'll just penetrate our hearts. Shed the light of your word upon them. Help us to see if we truly have a healthy mind. Is Is the light in us your light? Or do we just think it is? And Father, I ask that you will make us a church of people who love you with a passion and a single-hearted devotion, that we're not sidetracked, that the light in us is the light of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.